Hi, everyone, and welcome to this brand new episode of Security and Two Sugars. My name is Annabelle Berry, and I am beyond excited uh, this episode to welcome my first guy onto the security sofa. And that guy is Dennis Onoha, who is the Chief Information Security Officer at Arkiva. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Annabelle. How are you doing? Pleasure to be on the sofa today. <laughs> Well, it's great to have you. You're the first chap who's made it onto the sofa, who's nestled in in the security cushions of the sofa and ready to tell your story. So I'm very excited to have you on. And thank you so much for making the time because I know how busy you are. No problem at all, Annabelle. It's my pleasure. And you're definitely doing diversity right for me to be the first guy because I know you've had quite a few podcasts already. (laughs) So that's good. I have, yes. Yes, indeed. So no, that's good. So I'm I'm really pleased that you could um come on and I'm excited to hear your story. So um Dennis, we met gosh, must be in about two or three years ago now. Um and we met properly at NISC, I think, in twenty eighteen. Would that have been right? I think we met before that, but I think we met properly at NISC when you came to keynote for us. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that was in twenty eighteen. That's right. Gosh. And tonight, the evening that we're recording, is not only the eve of lockdown two, uh, but is also the evening that we would have been at NISC 21. So um, our 21st NISC should have been tonight. So that's it feels apt that you're the person that I'm talking to. So because I know you've been the last couple of years, you ran a really, really cool, interactive and quite scary at times because there were balaclavas involved. Uh, incident response live session um, with your colleague Erhan, didn't you, last year? Yeah, that's correct. We did um, a um, simulated attack with Erhan at NISC. There were balaclavas involved. The la- there were lights going out involved. There was shock and panic. So, yes, there was quite a bit. That was really exciting. The first time Erhan and I had actually done it with, um, what was it, about 100 plus people, 150 people? Yeah, I think more than that. I think yeah, 100, 150, 200, I think probably in the auditorium. I think no, it was so it was it was good fun and very interactive. You say the lights lights went out, there was screaming, there was all sorts of stuff going on. No, it was it was it was great. So um we really appreciated you doing that and putting that on for us. So all good. So before we settle into our chat, I always have a quick beverage check-in. Um so what are you drinking this evening, Dennis, to accompany your time on the security sofa? Well, as it's um, evening time in the UK, 20 to 8, <laughs> I am drinking a nice glass of Zacapa rum, that rum. Very nice. And it, is it neat? At the moment, it is neat, as it's the first one. I'm suspecting the second one will be diluted with Coke. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I was going to say you're easing in gently, but you're not easing in gently at all. No, no, no. I am easing in gently. You know, it's just like a nice... You've got to enjoy rum on the rocks. That's when you truly taste the rum. If you want to taste the oak, the smoke, it's basically on ice. Okay. All right. Good. Well, I'm also drinking alcohol this evening. This is my first podcast I've recorded with alcohol. And because it was you... And because it's the eve of lockdown too, and because we should have been at NISC um, playing some interactive games on the first games evening tonight, I have got a bottle of Desperado beer, 
So, you know, desperate times call for desperado measures. Yeah. Boom, boom. Yeah, get it? Here all week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With the corny jokes. So um, I've only just started the beer for anyone who's wondering. So hopefully um, my jokes will improve over the course of the podcast. But um, so good. You've got your rum. I've got my beer. And I'm really excited to hear your story, Dennis, because we've known each other a couple of years and uh, we haven't had this conversation. So I, I don't know what's going to unfold over the course of the next hour or so. Um, so I'm excited to hear about your career story. So literally where in the world does this story begin for you i'll i'll personally take it back to where i was born so it began in moscow russia a lot of people don't know that wow (laughs) that's where it began i wasn't expecting that no so you were born in moscow correct i was born in moscow indeed a very long time ago not that long (laughs) depends on what lens you look at it from but yeah (laughs) and um and so you said that that kind of began so there was a a move yeah correct so i was i'm born in moscow and then i moved to nigeria because i'm actually of russian i'm of russian and nigerian descent and i was born in moscow and then i moved to lagos nigeria for a short while back to moscow in, be- in between those times, back to Nigeria, then Germany, then Nigeria, then the UK. So I've had a very long journey to get to where I am today, basically. And all, all that journey shaped me. I had different crucible moments against different, well, at different stages of the journey. Yeah, I can imagine. So how old were you when you moved to Nigeria the first time? Uh, the first time I must have been about four or five, very, very young. I was a young, wee little lad. And um, I remember moving to Nigeria and it all being very, very strange because it's sort of developed world to underdeveloped world at that point in time. And um, I kind of, it was just a culture shock, really. I wasn't expecting it. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Obviously, at school then, what kind of jobs were you, was a young Dennis aspiring to do at that time? At that time, a young Dennis was actually aspiring to become a pilot because it was actually cool to be a pilot back then. Used to the pilots I knew used to fly, be in exotic places, have fun, party, you know. So I wanted that kind of flamboyant lifestyle, so to speak. Completely, no, completely get that. Have you seen Catch Me If You Can? I have seen Catch Me. Very flamboyant. Yeah, it's very glamorous back then. Um, not that I'm suggesting it's that far back for you, obviously. But um, So you wanted to be a pilot. Yep. And what kind of things were you studying at school? And what kind of, you know, what kind of courses were you heading towards at that time based on, you know, wanting to fly for a living? What kind of things were, were on the cards for you in terms of college and you know, moving forward to kind of latter stages of education? So for me, it sort of was the physics, chemistry, biology, technical drawing, home economics as well, because that was um, compulsory in Nigeria. So I did learn how to cook when I was in school. And Are you a good cook? Well, I always say I'm a good cook, but that's got some bias in it. And pe- people <laughs> people generally like my food and they like to eat. And um, the African and Russian descent, food brings people together. So I remember growing up and um, this was actually one of my other crucible moments. And my mom was the anchor of her community. 
So when her friends had problems at home, problems in life, they'll come, they'll eat, they'll drink, they'll have a laugh. So that was, I always grew up around food. Mm. So it's, it's still important to you. Yeah, yeah, it is very important because I think, you know, the whole saying of breaking bread. So I think a lot of things in life generally done around food and drink, it's easier, more relaxed, even business negotiations, even interviews, you know, people are less stressed. So I think that's kind of the human society. And we've been doing that for generations, if you look back in history. Yeah, very true. So you are mainly science and tech drawing based, obviously, and some yep. cooking thrown into the mix. Yep. yep. Um, in terms of college and kind of latter higher education certifications and things like that what kind of courses did you do and what sort of so for me I I obviously did what we spoke about and then I did my American SATs preparing to um, fly out to go and become a pilot and I mean there was a few things firstly my dad being African wanted me to do something more engineering medicine you know what Africans typically see as core professions because in Africa getting a degree and being an engineer or and it's sort of technical profession like that is seen as a general way to success. And um, that obviously didn't pan out. And I ended up needing to do something to while my time away, re-equip myself. So I then um, did my MCSC and my Cisco CCNA. So that was, um, to tell you how old that was, that was on Windows NT 4.1. <laughs> That, that was, I remember it that well. That was why I did my MCSC on, and it was like, I think it was seven books, if I remember right, that you had to read some really big books and um, CBT nuggets. So, but I really, I really wanted to do it. So there was a school, which was like sort of a close family friend school where um, he kind of, he, well, he was a tutor, so he delivered CCNA, MCSC, he had a lab. And I kind of just moved into the school and slept on the floor for a few nights, for a few weeks. And then I came out all qualified thinking, right, I could um, conquer the world. Because I'd already been dabbling in computers. So in school, I did a bit of computing, but that was more, it's fun to use a computer. I want to fly Microsoft Flight Simulator. I need access to a computer in the school lab. Um, I also, as a very young age, um, had a very close friend and he was writing a program, I believe it was on DBase actually, that's how old that is as well, to manage inventories in pharmacies and fill prescriptions, sell drugs, so the whole ecosystem, because my dad being a doctor, hospitals, that was my place, and I had dabbled in computers, and I just thought, you know what, let me do this, so I did that with um, the hope of coming, well, when I came to England for my university, with the hope of picking up the gold that was littered on the streets because I had MCSC and CCNA. I was going to ask what the goal was or what the kind of the, the next step was. So getting those certifications and then coming over to the UK to go to uni to study what? So to go to uni, <laughs> this is really, really interesting. So I didn't know what I was going to study in uni. I came to do my A-levels first and naturally I landed... And I did my A-levels, I'm just trying to remember, in IT, sociology and business. And uh, I ended up crashing my A-levels royally. And by royally, I mean getting a U in sociology, for example. 
And I think I got a B in IT. So I actually went into University of Hertfordshire through Clarin to study computer and network technology. But when I was leaving Nigeria and coming to the UK, I wasn't looking that fine career because I was a boy whose dream had been broken because I wasn't going to study what I wanted to study. And also the fact that I had my MCSEs and I thought, yep, I'm going to come. I'll be doing my A-levels. I'll pick up a contracting job. At that point, I was hearing things like people are getting paid £40 an hour. So I'll have a lifestyle <laughs> as a young teenager, you know, being an old 18, 19-year-old. But yeah, it didn't, it didn't quite pan out like that. No. And all the best people go through clearing, by the way. So you're in good company. <laughs> oh, <okay>. um, <laughs> so um, you went to do IT in Hertfordshire. Mm-hmm. What did you have? What kind of job? Obviously, you talked, talked about the contracting. You, you heard about, you know, the fact that, you know, there was reasonable money in perhaps some of those um, contracting jobs and things like that. But did you have any sense about what it was you wanted to do afterwards or a longer term career at that point? No. So at, at that point, I just wanted to get through uni, get through life. I knew I wanted to do, I well, I knew I was going to do some courses. I would do something engineering. I didn't know the lay of the land. So when I came, it was more surviving because I think I came with about £100 in coins. <laughs> that was what I landed with. But obviously, my parents were supporting my uni accommodation. But that was like my own kind of pocket money. So I didn't, and I had um, very, two very close family friends that I started living with when I first came here. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I needed a degree. I needed to do something. I'm okay at computers. So let me go and work with computers. And on coming here, I did have some experience because I dabbled around in Nigeria, did a few contracts here and there. Um, unfortunately that experience wasn't accepted because the companies couldn't verify it or whatever it was. I didn't have an NI number back then because it was taking a while to process it, even though I was legal in the country, but back then things took longer. So it was generally more difficult getting a job. So my first job was actually stacking shelves in, um, Max and Spencer's in the fridges and rotating the stock between half five and half eight in the morning before I went to college for my A-levels. At that point in time, I was just like 16, 17-year-old teenagers who really didn't have an aspiration to do anything because that dream was broken. So I would say I was lost and confused and finding myself. But I knew I was good with tech. I've always liked playing with tech and gadgets. So to me, it was, okay, I'm going to do something tech. And when I then got my results... I knew I could only do something tech because IT was the only subject I passed. I, I passed. I didn't pass business. I didn't pass sociology. So IT was the next spot of call. And then I went to Hertfordshire, studied computer network technology with a minor in high performance processing and parallel processor design, which I paid attention then. I didn't know what semiconductors would be like today, <laughs> but I didn't pay attention then as much as I should have. And while I was doing that, I was working for um, the first video streaming company in the UK called um, Home Choice, and I was doing tech support in the evenings. So I had a, I did have a job in between that time, Again, stockroom assistance in retail. So I didn't take the traditional path most people take. In fact, I don't even know what a traditional path is. But 
you know, a good friend wants to... I was going to say, is there one? I'm not sure there is, no, really, but yeah, yeah. There isn't one, but, you know, I've always been brought up uh, with the notion, having a father who's an educa- who was an educated doctor, you know, mom educated, the whole family educated. I've always been thought you need plans, you need to know the future, or you need to know what you want to do in the future, you need to know what steps you want to take. And um, recently I've had other moments in life where a good friend told me, you know, you've just got to put one leg in front of the other and have a rough idea in what direction you're heading and trust that the path will define, it, it will define itself as you walk on that path. And that's kind of what happened to me, to be honest, because from um, home choice, uh, home choice then got acquired by, I believe it was Tiskily at that point in time. And at that point in time, they asked me to reapply for my job. And I was a hot-headed, young <laughs> adult who thought, the well, I own the world. So I was like, well, if I'm going to reapply here, I'm going to do my CV, might as well apply. And then I went to work for a private bank doing system support so that was more storage backups batch jobs not running end of day transactions and then i didn't realize that as a contractor you needed to pay tax so when it got to the end of the tax yeah i realized i had a problem and at that point in time i actually applied for the role i have well for the company i work for today not the role i have today i've progressed significantly in my last um 13 years in akiva Mm. and so just taking you back a couple of steps dennis in terms of you coming to the uk what was your experience of of coming to the uk for the first time and i know you were coming over to study initially and then you know obviously getting jobs shelf stacking you know rotating stock in retail you know and the job that you had obviously with home, home choice but overall what was the experience of of coming to the UK was it a positive one um it was a positive one I guess I came at a time when the UK was changing so I came just before the UK had sort of you know late licenses for alcohol Tesco's were open 24 hours a day so it was just before that point and my main point on arrival in the UK I felt everything was small I felt the houses were much smaller I felt it was really cold because I was used to the heat and tropics but I did think that in the UK there were a lot more opportunities because one of the things that I saw in Nigeria when I was there was that you needed connections and you needed people to progress and I didn't want to progress based on who I knew or where I was connected I genuinely wanted to deserve where I was. I wanted to achieve it, work for it and get it and be rewarded. And I thought in the UK, there were a lot of opportunities. And what perplexed me was why some people misused, I wouldn't say misused actually, didn't use the opportunities. You know, if you look at basic infrastructure, 24 hours electricity, you turn on your tap, there's water, you don't get robbed, you know, because in Nigeria that happens regardless of whether you're poor, whether you're middle class or whether you're upper class is just what happens. So I felt peace and stability to a certain extent and what people were alarmed by, I just didn't really see that as a problem. Mm, yeah, different different perspective completely. Mm, so, yeah, you're, sp- you're spot on. And I, I mean, I found it welcoming. Yes, I did find challenges along the way. But that's natural because, I mean, you don't understand cultures. I remember the first time a very close friend of mine took me to Manchester. I couldn't understand a word anyone said. 
you know, at that point you're in a bar, everyone's loud. I just didn't get the accent. They probably didn't get my accent at that point in time either. So it was, it was strange, but it was good strange. I saw it as it's my opportunity. It's my clean path. I never planned to come to the UK. My plan was to go to the States. I always wanted to go to America, but I guess life brings you where it brings you because I'm really glad I came to the UK today. That I can tell you. And I know what you were saying about working uh, at the supermarket and working early, the early shift and things like that. I know that when we've spoken before, you've talked about people who've gone out their way to help you. What was your experience at that time, you know, either at college or, you know, early on in those jobs of, of people kind of going out their way and showing perhaps kindness when they didn't have to? Oh, I think, to be honest, I've been one of those people that I have had a lot of privileged people on my path help me. Um, I mean, my first one was just coming in and getting a job. If you need to, uh, as I mentioned, I was young. I had my MCSC, my certs, and I thought, yep, let's go ahead. We're all singing and dancing. And when I came here, I couldn't get that. So I was broken. And one of my uncles literally told me, look, get your CV. I've got a job in Edexcel. I'll get you a job stacking shelves. You need to start earning. You need to get yourself out the house. So that motivated me. You know, it was a bit more pocket money. It, mean, it meant I could take the tube rather than walk or take the bus at that point in time to my college. So it was much quicker getting to college, 15 minutes rather than an hour trek. Um, you know, I've also had people at that point in time who will pick me up in the morning, the shift leader there, you know, again, fellow immigrants didn't know me from Adam, but just said, oh, you live here. I live around the corner. Let me come and pick you up. You don't need to take the night bus at 5 a.m. So you can get here for half five, you know, and on a cold dark night. So I had them obviously help me over there. I had people who believed in me and this is more in my Akiva journey, because in Akiva, I started working from desktop support systems analyst, you know, fixing laptops, doing a bit of telephony, SQL database. And the main thing was that people kind of showed me the path of where to go and they did what they could to help me within the system at that point in time. So, you know, where sometimes people are waiting for organizations to train them I actually trained myself and I made sure I was in that position that when that opportunity arose, people actually had the right opportunity to help me because I had the relevant skills or capabilities at that point in time. And even in some jobs in during my rise, I may not have had the capabilities when I was given the job. However, what I have always had is determination to work hard and crack things. I remember... I mean, I remember a problem I had and I literally didn't sleep for 48 hours because I was on the internet looking at how I will fix this when I was technical. I'm one of those kind of people that I just go, go and go. So I guess it's determination, luck and opportunities, really. Let me ask you about that for a second, because it's something that's come up time and time again on this podcast with the people that I've interviewed is just people taking the opportunities when they've been presented with them, regardless of whether or not they felt perhaps they could or they were qualified for it. And there's a consistent theme in there. And I've also been asked just recently about things like imposter syndrome. Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome and has it held you back? Uh, certainly in those earlier days, because you talked about obviously sort of throwing yourself into a job, 
knowing that you you know had the right attitude you were going to work hard you were going to do your best which is you know something that I see I've I've heard other people talk about and I've, I've and I've experienced in my own career but did you at any point at that time think oh actually I'm not really qualified for this maybe I shouldn't put myself forward for that or did you just think you know what I'm just going to go for it and take the leap so I'm a bit of the go for it and take the lip kind of guy. The reason being, I believe, you if you try, what's the worst that can happen? You will fail. If you fail, the most important thing is to take lessons and try again. You know, I take this back to how we were when we came to this earth. We didn't come programmed by default to walk, run, swim, dance, jump and do what we do today, right? We didn't know none of it, but we started crawling. Then we started falling as we were crawling. Then we started walking. Then we started running. And a career is exactly the same. It's like a fine wine. People change. People have experience. But you need to be willing to experiment and try. And for me, not trying personally is the worst thing I can ever do. Yes, I'm scared. Yes, I'm worried. Have I had imposter syndrome probably at points at other points people haven't understood me as well because one of the ways i work and i read um i have a business review paper on this actually is i change my styles very often and very rapidly so i'm i experiment very quickly because i don't believe in spending a lot of time trying something that doesn't work i would rather do something get it you know, 80, 90%, try again, and then go in increments till I get to where I need to go. And some people, from the feedback I personally received, and I'm very thankful for getting that feedback, um, believe that I was fake because I changed. You know, one day I'm like this, the next week I'm like that. But I think that's life. You've got to, and it's the same as a field, right? You've got to plan, do, check, act. You're planning to go outside, you check the forecast, you know it's going to rain or it says it's going to rain. Hopefully it rains. When you have a brolly, you're going to bring it out, right? So you're changing what you're doing. And I think it's the same in life. However, it takes courage. And one one major thing is having that right support network for when you fail. Someone you can talk to, someone that can, as we say in the UK, chew the fat with you, look at options, what can you do better, critically analyze yourself. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more about that. I'm I'm definitely in that camp with you about, you know, what's the worst that could happen. I'd rather I'd rather jump in and do something and know that I tried than regret the fact that I didn't try, you know, and that that's really important, but I think your your lessons learned piece I think is is a key bit as well because everybody makes mistakes and you've had to then learn from those mistakes of a a real uh, big advocate for reviewing and carrying out a postmortem sometimes when it's needed, you know, in the, in the kind of about what's happened and, and then to learn all of the key lessons that you need. And then, you know, the, the trick is not to make those mistakes again where, po- where possible and to learn from those. But sometimes you have to make those mistakes in the first place, I think, don't you? Correct. And I mean, I remember the biggest mistake I made in my career and that was lying to my boss and my boss catching me out. And that actually brought our relationship closer. And I never lied again since then. You know, I've just realized that the truth sets you free because I effectively caused an outage because I made a mistake. And when my boss called me, I said it wasn't me. And I knew it was me. And 
five, ten minutes later, my boss came back to me. And I'm not proud of it. But at the same time, I'm not fully ashamed because it's my credible, it was my crucible moment and how I learned. And which role was that in? I'm was not it early... say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, is that kind of a, was that earlier on in your career? Clearly, very, that's what very, I was trying very, to say. Very, yeah, very, yeah, very, okay. Very <laughs> I was, I was, I was fresh out of university. Yeah, at that point okay. In time. Yeah, fine. You that's know. what I was going to ask. Okay, so. Um, you mentioned obviously the first role then you've come to Arkiva um, you've talked a little bit about the initial job that you did there and the initial role and responsibility you had so but you've been at Arkiva since 2007 is that right that's correct yep. yeah 13 13 years yeah so what what was your first couple of roles at Arkiva and and what did that entail and what did you have again what what did you have in mind you talked about morphing and changing and embracing new opportunities did you see a certain path ahead of you at that point Annabelle you know me what do you think my answer it's going to be no Dennis isn't it (laughs) (laughs) exactly I had no clue all I knew right was Akiva was paying me similar to what I was getting in my contract with the tax obviously the doctor and they'll manage that for me I knew it was a great company to work for because I had a friend who I used to work with in Home Choice. So the company I left that was in Akiva a month before me and told me about Akiva. And again, this is why I mean by opportunity. So for my Akiva interview, my friend took out four hours to prep me on these are the systems. This is what you need to worry about. And my friend wasn't the person who hired me, not even working in that department, working within the business. You know, and um, so my first role was um, desktop support, aka build laptops, ghost laptops, you know, help users being on the ground. Because at that point we had an outsource with IBM and we were actually insourcing it. So I was part of the first wave of insource people that were coming in. And that was where there were always opportunities. And I joined at the right path at the right time because there were a lot of gaps. And for those people who don't know what Arkiva do, just very quickly, do you want to explain what you do as an organisation? Okay, thank you very much. So Arkiva are a critical national infrastructure provider in the United Kingdom. We are responsible for the smart metering network for gas and electricity in the north. Uh, That comprises of approximately 10 million communications hubs, so that's 10 million homes. We also transmit all TV on Freeview. So if you're watching TV at home through an aerial digital terrestrial that comes through Akiva, we operate the commercial DAB radio multiplexes and um, FM AM radio as well. And we also have satellite services. So Akiva does a lot of telecommunications in the background to which most of the UK interact with on a day-to-day basis, but you just don't know or hear of Akiva. Well, that's why I was asking, because I think when I first met you, I hadn't heard of Akiva. Well, I'd heard of Akiva, but I didn't understand the the breadth of what you did as an organisation, which is quite vast, isn't it? And quite complex and ingrained, as you say, in the critical national infrastructure. Um, So it's a a big, big job that you're doing right now. so you've got your initial roles at Arkiva. How did you move forward from 
the laptop rebuilds, ghosting laptops. Okay. That side of things. So obviously I, ha- I had a very steep learning curve because a lot of the skills that I needed, I didn't have. So a lot of my colleagues in Akiva, some of whom are still in Akiva, helped me out. Some have left. They got me up to speed with the job. And then Akiva um, acquired BT Satellite. So we had to integrate them into Akiva. And at that point, that gave me my opportunity to move more into servers. Then there was another opportunity in London, which was for a um, SQL database administrator and looking after IT as well and backup. So general IT, but with SQL expertise. And I was flexible. I was happy to travel to London, had the can-do attitude, and I effectively moved over to that role. Then London was closing down and there were opportunities back in Winchester. At this point in time, I was living in Hatfield, so Winchester was a four-hour commute there and back because the M25 hadn't been widened by then. It was two hours going there, two hours going back. And I, I thought in my head, you know what, if I get to the head office... I will find an angle, I will find somewhere where I can make myself useful, apply my skills and show Akiva that I am capable of doing things. And I always volunteered. So when there was overtime for the infrastructure team, someone wanted an engineer, you know, when you had, we had big IBM storage arrays. So typically you had the IBM engineers going to replace failed disks and there'll be data centers near my house. And I made myself available to other teams so that they could trust me and knew I could take care of things. And also it was different. It was a different place because some people I worked with had families. They didn't want to travel. They didn't want to work overtime within the business naturally. At that point, young single dentist, I wanted the overtime. I needed to pay off the debt I had incurred in uni through my frivolous, stupid lifestyle because I didn't know any better. So I just, I just kind of worked and I took up anything that came my way. I just took it. Anyone said, we need a volunteer for this. I'll put my hand up. Again, that's a reoccurring theme, I think, on the podcast that people have thrown their hat into the ring time and time again for things, volunteering, you know, overtime roles, being parts of project groups and things like that. So um, not not surprised to hear that about you. Um, and was security on your radar at all at this point? So, yes, security got onto my radar when I was in Akiva, London, because we had a checkpoint upgrade and the checkpoint upgrade failed. And the team doing the upgrade were doing it remotely from Winchester and I was the hands and ears and eyes in London. And that was really crazy. I mean, I was in the office, I think, for 16 hours working with the checkpoint engineer, the team from Winchester. And at that point, it just piqued my interest and I always wanted to get into that team, but I just didn't get an opportunity until later on when one of my colleagues who's no longer there told me, um, a chap named Zumana told me, oh, I will teach you everything you need to know about checkpoint firewalls. And this was the IP boxes. So this was the Nokia boxes, the Nokia checkpoint boxes, the IP, I think 6970 or something appliances that had um, a PCMCIA memory card in them. Yes, I remember so. them well. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Got correct. And, and this is where the story, the story actually gets twisted. Remind me to tell you about the Nokia boxes. And um, I then got into it. Zumana helped me out. The teams left. There were changes, opportunities. And I got in doing network and um, security. 
you know that was I was more of an operations person I had no knowledge of got GRC risk it was more just how you block things on firewalls how you configure VPNs what rules are what Juniper SSL VPN does and what what year was that um you're testing my memory <laughs> that was in 2010 2010 but really and I was going to say probably still network security in the perimeter side of things mm-hmm. There was still a lot of focus around that is what I'm trying to say. Much less as security as we know it today, you know, 10 years on. I'm not saying it wasn't around, obviously, in 2010, but there was still a lot of focus still on the perimeter side of things, I think, much more than than anything else. Yeah, correct. So we had um, focus on more perimeter operational, so, you know, antivirus, checkpoint point sec encryption, at that point in time, because you didn't have BitLocker. So it was similar, but it wasn't. And again, we need to remember, Akiva at that point was more of a broadcast company and a telecoms company. It's different to finance because finance were always one step ahead. And this, again, is the crucible moments and opportunities I had to develop because we had to rapidly evolve and come to where we are today. We had to move from being that operational security company to more assurance governance being more mature effectively so you've had a little dipped your toe in the water you've had a little focus in on the network security side of things around the firewalls and and immersing yourself in some of that perimeter defense technology and things like that what was the next role and did you decide at that point that security was something that you wanted to follow or to get more involved in I did. I did decide that was um, something I wanted to get more involved in for sure, because I found it exciting. I saw that it was a field that was rapidly growing. I thought it was somewhere where I could really make a difference and it was different. And what I then did was I did my checkpoints, um, I think it was CCSE at that point, in t- sorry, CCSA, I didn't get to CCSE, so Checkpoint Certified uh, Security Ac- Administrator, is, I yeah. think, yeah. I did that accreditation, and I then did a bit of operations. Again, there were more opportunities for me to build the team out further, because as I was doing operations, I was also researching looking at forums talking to people i saw people in the industry who i wanted to be like you know i said one day i want to be like that person you know having that role in an organization of such size so i had my heroes from within the industry but i had no clue how i was going to get there i at this point i knew where i was going but not how i was what kind of roles were they that you had in your site (laughs) Well, there you go. Yeah, CISOs, basically. CISOs, VP of security. Because I've always, I guess it's also how I grew up. I've I've always seen that the way you can change an organization is start growing in it, get to the top of it, and then start fully influencing across the entire enterprise. Because the lower down you are, the less your sphere of influence is and your span of control so i believe that to do things right you have to get to the heart of it and how important 
is people for you in that? Oh, people is definitely the most important thing because like I've been candid, I don't have SME um, subject matter expertise in every topic that I have to deal with. So people make me tick. Without my people, without my team, I wouldn't be where I am today. Different people within my teams play different part in my journey and made me shine, including suppliers, not just people that I controlled with, just general people in business in life. And really immersing yourself in the business as well. I think that's the big thing that I noticed about you when we first met was how immersed you were in, in the business as a whole, as opposed to perhaps just around the IT teams and technology teams. Correct. And um, the reason for that, again, is my journey. Because at first, my first um, director was an IT director reporting into a CFO. So it was your classic structure of IT director reporting into CFO, who then reports into CEO. And that was my first opportunity to really take a leadership role. And when my IT director retired, really nice um, chap, Paul Fremantle, he, um, the next manager that took on was a um, director called David Crawford, but he was more commercial, sales-driven, because he was an MD of a business unit. So it was a totally different approach and that changed my approach and shaped me. And every new director or boss I've had has given me a totally different lens. So I, I see it like looking through a kaleidoscope, you know, every different leader has stopped me something else. And I mean, the reason I said, remind me of the IP um, 60, 70 Nokia firewalls was because my CEO at that point in time, when I was appointed CISO, um, a gentleman called Simon Beresford Wiley. He was the CEO of Nokia Siemens Network who sold those boxes to checkpoints. <laughs> so it went, it went yeah. 360. And I remember taking a taxi ride with him to go and meet some of our customers across London. And he told me of where he came from, coming from a council flat in Yorkshire, traveling to Australia with his mom when he was really young. In fact, he wrote an article on LinkedIn about that recently. And, you know, when I saw his journey, I could relate to his journey. And I then realized that my vision that you don't need to be connected or know people to be successful to, sorry, you don't need to be connected or know people in terms of having backhand special favors, you know, back channel conversation. Yes, that does happen across the world. But if you work hard, you have your vision, passion, you're honest, you treat people with respect, people will generally look after you, the universe will take care of you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that, that's something that's particularly important for you, isn't it? I think, again, from the conversations that we've had, that you know, lots of people in your business are all different roles and responsibilities and so on. Yeah, I think um, values. I, one thing I've realized, and I'm throwing the word out there, one thing I've realized fairly recently with the, it's all started with the George Floyd murder because I never, I never thought of, um, I never really saw race as a disadvantage because I was used to, you know, in Nigeria, I'm white, in the UK, I'm black, in Russia, the same thing, being mixed race, you've kind of never really fitted anywhere and people have given me a label. So you grow a thick skin and you forget about the label to get on. And only recently have I realized that, you know, I've broken that stereotype and that barrier and I need to share my voice. I need to share my story and help people because a lot of things 
we're suffering from have come from a very long way. And I just think that in life, you just need to be true to yourself and show your values. And, you know, if someone is unethical, if companies are unethical, then you don't deserve to be there. There'll be someone somewhere else you can go to. And that's why I've started more. I've started to be more tuned into my values and respect them and see how I can help other people and understand their values as well and help them understand mine so we can work better together. I think that's really important. And is that something that's really come to the forefront this year for you? Yeah, you so it came to the forefront this year primarily because of the George Floyd protest that started me thinking quite a lot and it took me to a really dark place, to be honest. I mean, the whole week, I spent the whole weekend crying because unfortunately I watched the video the uncensored video that was on social media that was sent to me and that just broke me you know that absolutely Mm. broke me I had hatred anger I don't even know for who I had that hatred and anger you know it was like what's the point living in such a hateful world we're looking at the most developed country that's meant to be an example and holding the standard for the whole world you know a superpower so to me, that broke me. And then recently we've had protests in Nigeria against police brutality. And again, it's people, people are suffering in Africa's most populous country with resources. And a lot of times we speak, we talk about diversity, we talk about inclusion, this, that. But I thought to myself, what have I personally done to move the needle? Because unless I'm in it and helping move the needle, I have no right to complain. Yeah, yeah. And so that's changed how you're going to approach things or being more out there talk, talking about your 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 story and your experiences is that is that how you'll move the needle do you think Correct I th- I think that's definitely how I'll move the needle because for me I did I did an exercise and um I actually wrote my obituary not in a dark way but I wanted to know what do I what is my purpose what do I want to be known for when I'm gone You know, what do I want people to say at my funeral when they're having a drink? And for me, I want to be seen as the enabler. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to take the credit. I want people around me to take that credit because it's a team effort. It's their work. They need to shine. You know, my job as a leader is actually to serve. You know, I should be the one making the teas and the coffees because my people are the ones doing the work. I'm putting the show together giving them the tools they need to do to go and conquer the world and make us proud and win as a team. Yes. It's stewardship, you know, that role of stewardship or, or custodian. I was thinking, I, li- I like the, 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 the term custodian because it, you know, literally means given the responsibility of looking after something of value and, and looking after and protecting it and moving that forward and I, I that's I love that analogy when it comes to to leadership in terms of stewardship and custodial uh leadership I think that's a very powerful image which I think is what you're what you're talking about so um it's funny actually somebody else asked me that question the other day about the um obituary thing or what would people say um so it's been an interesting uh topic of conversation that's come up just recently actually about that so um it's it's definitely food for thought isn't it it is, because I think we all need to leave our legacy and leave our mark. The question is, what legacy do you want to live? A positive legacy, a, leg- a negative legacy, or just do nothing, not give back to society? And I think negative for me and not doing anything and not an option. I want to change 
I want to change people's lives, basically. I want to sacrifice myself to make the next generation better. I heard a podcast. I was It wasn't a podcast, actually. It was a recording. It was a video recording. Somebody sent me the day, a, a, a chief, chief exec friend of mine sent me, um, shared it with a group, actually. And it was a video of a lady talking about happiness. And she says that the ancient Egyptians believed that at the gates of heaven, whatever that was to them, um, that you would ask only two questions about your life, whether you had given joy to others and whether you had experienced joy. And she said that was a lovely thing, that actually the, your whole life would come down to two questions only. And it was around that. And I quite I quite like that as a as a topic of thought or, or conversation. It prompts again, prompts food for thought, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I'm not a religious person, although I come from a religious family and I've made it my business to understand a lot of different religions other than my religion. And if you look at humanity and religion, kindness is the one thing every one of them have in common. There's always a story of kindness in any book you read. Mm, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Gosh, right, we've got a long way from cybersecurity, so I'm going to haul us back because that was, um, <laughs> I was, it was, a, loved, loved that uh, conversation, Dennis, and we could probably go on for another hour or so about that, but um, bring going to bring you back to Arkiva and your de- development in obviously your cybersecurity career as it is now. So, Moving on from where we were then, what what happened next for you in terms of information security and cybersecurity? Obviously, you had, you were looking at the people in the industry, you were thinking, I really want those types of roles, because obviously, you wanted that type of influence within an organisation um, to help change and shape that organisation moving forward. So what was the next step for you? So the next step for me was to position myself because, as I mentioned, first my first non-leadership role was um, network and security. And then from there, my next leadership role, well, my first leadership role was becoming the manager of that function on the head of information security. And what I had, what I also do, and this is just a habit, I always make sure I'm positioned and I'm armed should I need to pr- make a different choice, divert my career path. So I've always invested in certification in terms of CISM or, or the CESAR, the Certified Information Security Manager. At that point, I used to do an exam every two years to make sure I had current accreditation and I kept up to speed with what was going on. And what I eventually then did was not knowingly, I positioned myself to have the right credentials for when my boss's role came up. And I interviewed for the role. I was appointed for the role. And really, that was my platform. That was from where I could really start making a difference. And back to humanity again. And this is, I guess this is a telling thing about people and culture and how you have to behave. But my CEO... Um, Simon at that point told me, okay, Dennis, we've got to build a relationship with the regulators and you've got to be open, honest and straightforward with them because we were going to get much closer with the government to make sure we had the right advice rather than going to pay consultancies who were going to give us general advice. We wanted to tap into the source and Mm. that encouragement actually helped me up my game because all of a sudden I had access to 
all these talented individuals who could help us plan, see a way through, give us good advice, you know, and the the candor and, you know, we haven't done something, we can't do it. You just say straightforward. And that, again, resonated with me based on my previous experiences. And we built the we build the program for ground up. So I am Akiva's first CISO and I effectively build that role from that head of InfoSec role with people helping me to deliver and ensure we could move the bar, raise the bar in Akiva with regards to cybersecurity. And you talk about um, certifications. I know because obviously I spotted it on LinkedIn about your, you did a master's, didn't you, at Holloway? in cyber correct talk talk me through talk me through that and why why you felt you needed that i felt i needed a master's to be like my heroes remember i mentioned my heroes and where i saw myself so i felt like to be the CEO of a big organization or a big corporate i needed to have an msc mm-hmm I had already been in the industry for about that time. It would have been about 10 years or so. And I felt I needed to have credentials. I already had the BSc and I felt, oh, you know what? What credentials can I get that will elevate me or show that I'm qualified? I had the certifications. You had to renew them and I still keep them current. However, I thought I wanted some formal qualification. And that was what drove me to Holloway. Holloway was also close to my house. So it was convenient. And to be honest, I enjoyed the degree. I made very good friends there. We still talk together. We still talk to each other. However, the degree at that time for me was probably the wrong thing because what I realized was I didn't understand how businesses worked. Right. And that leads to where I am today doing an MBA. Wow, okay. So where where are you doing your MBA? So I'm doing an MBA in the University of Bath. I started, um, when did I start? I started last year. So I'm actually in my second year now. And I felt, as I mentioned, I finished my MSc in 2017. I had two year, two year gap from academia. And my a new boss, Clive White, he, he was uh, mentoring me and coaching me. And he gave me the idea that, oh, Dennis, you might want to consider MBA. So he had already started using some of the tools. He's an MBA himself, and he had already started using some of the tools that he liked. Now I know those were the tools. And he felt that that would pivot me and sort of polish me up on the business lens because what I had was good security knowledge, good operational knowledge. But I would personally admit it, I struggled to connect with the board and the different stakeholders as much as i had a good relationship with the board it was more that actual the so what connection understanding the business context better understanding things businesses actually care about and understanding a bit of finance because i dreaded finance and we've talked about this a lot and i know this subject comes up a lot and i get asked about asked about this a lot which is the challenges between communicating with the business and the board and security. Given that you're immersing yourself in the MBA that you're doing now and given your experience, what do you think are the very high level, because uh, we don't have time to go into it in depth, but in term, in your view, what is what are the things that we could do to improve that? Apart from understand more about what one another are doing, clearly. I think... 
You see, I'll talk about my own personal experience and I'll let people interpret that to their own person. So my biggest, my biggest downfall was my passion. Wow. You don't hear that very often. No. Nope, <laughs> Explain. <laughs> <laughs> so right, I'm very passionate about security. We're all passionate about security. It's what we do. We live it, breathe it. We want everything done perfectly. However, when you're so passionate and you get told no, or you can't do it, we don't agree with you, you become angry, you become emotional, you react. You know, if you think of athletes who run 100 meter races, when they lose, they break down and cry because Mm. they're passionate about that sport. They're passionate about winning and doing well. And with technologists coming from a technology background, we like doing things as we see is right. But what we miss is the other lenses and the other contexts that are going on in businesses. It could be organizational changes, strategic product reviews. It could be things that are need to know basis legitimately. And we also struggle to understand what matters to the board. So what lens is the CFO looking at it at? What lens is the chief people officer looking at it at? marketing you know how can we tune that and see it from their world and the only way we can understand that is by them being willing and able to spend time and explain it to us and hence why i've gone on my journey but for me to have started that journey the first part which really really hurt me was the self-awareness piece you know Mm. knowing your impact on others so i remember when i got my 360 feedback and 360 feedback, I wasn't a fan of it then. I've, I've come from a techie's background. You told, you told me Myers-Briggs five years ago, I would have told you what's that. I'm not interested in it. It's just some fake theory. But what I realized is having the telemetry and the different lenses, it gives you your perception of you. When you do a 360 feedback and you ask, one, you ask 10 people, or oh, tell me one good thing about Dennis and tell me one bad thing about Dennis, you force people in a box and... Forcing them in a box, yeah, they're going to give you 10 good things, but they're going to give you 10 bad things. And human beings will focus on the bad and will get upset. But when I re-looked at it, after I got over my emotion, I realized, hold on, they're actually doing me a favor because they're telling me what they don't like about me. They're telling me how I can improve. And guess what? It's that perception. And they're entitled to that perception. I can't challenge that perception, but I can work with that perception and knowing other human beings perceptions means I can tune myself, which is where that whole authenticity paradox comes in. I can tune myself to communicate better because it's like all human beings, you need to have the right chemistry and the right connection and come on ground. And it's also how I frame, it's also how I frame things. You know, if I frame something and say, oh, if we don't patch this, we're going to get breached. It's going to be X amount of fine. It's very different if I frame something saying, oh, you know, if we don't patch this, there might be an outage. We might, you know, let our customers down. Or if we patch it, it assures the service stays on air. It's really how you frame the questions. And I learned even up till today, and I'm doing this with my team because I'm trying to take my entire team on the same journey I'm going through at the same time I'm still on that journey. It's knowing how to frame it right and positively. Yeah, I think the way that we frame things and explaining things, I think quite often as well. I think that's a bit that we're not that great at doing still in securities. We tend to say no a lot or say don't, but not perhaps explaining things and I'm a big fan of that, which is 
sometimes explaining a little bit or giving a little bit of insight in terms of decisions or thought I think quite often helps other people see what you're trying to achieve um, rather than just this is what we're doing and you know it allows other people people to come with you I think correct and I mean the other thing as well that I've noticed is we're very very much a but society as well some of us are I was I put my hand up and now that I've actually learned otherwise, it's like, yeah, Annabelle, I agree with you, but that means I don't agree with you, right? <laughs> and I watch, I consciously yeah. watch people and watch myself now, so I know how to control that. And that, this is the one tip I'll actually tell anyone listening to this. Watch how many meetings you have, and you will hear either yourself or someone else say, I agree, but, and that means there's no agreement. And what... I've now learned from my new CEO, Paul Donovan, is radical candor. So I will now call that out and say, okay, clearly we're not in agreement. So let's write the facts down and at least let's agree the facts. And then we can decide mm. the next step because we're then getting agreements one step at a time rather than to your point of explaining, rather than the whole concept of it's all mythical. Okay, what are the facts? Is there a vulnerability Yes, there is. Do we agree that is serious enough? Because Microsoft said it's a CVSS 10. Yes, we agree. Okay, do we agree that if it's exploited, this is going to be the impact? Yes, we agree. Can we take the impact? No. Then, so what do we do? Yeah, it's all communication really, isn't it? It's come down to communication and, and, and listening. Talking as much as, listening as much as talking rather, um, is is really at the heart of what we're talking about, isn't it? Ultimately. Uh, listening to what people are saying, listen to those nuances in replies and, you know, being able to understand what that means and then be able to have those conversations that then lead to better communication ultimately, I think. So, yeah, definitely. So, Dennis, obviously in the existing role that you're in, you've been in this Chief Information Security Officer role now for how long? Oh, how long? Probably six, seven years. Five, six, seven years. Yeah, six, I can't remember. Years. It's been it's been a yeah. long time. And you're also, um, I spotted, you're also on the Forbes Technology Council. I am indeed. And what does that entail? So what Forbes Technology Council entails is effectively a platform for technology leaders to collaborate, support startups, put thought leadership pieces out there using the Forbes platform. Wow, that's interesting. It is. It, it keeps me busy or used, actually it used to keep me very busy. I'm not as active as I should be, but I've had quite a few startups reach out where I've supported them, given them my opinion on cybersecurity advice, connected, seen their products. And I've also put out a couple of thought leadership pieces with regards to cybersecurity in the utilities sector. Because again, part of my mantra is I need to get myself out there. I need to get my voice heard. And I need to give my opinion of how I see things, let people read that and form their own thoughts. It's not about me telling people what to do. And you actually highlighted that earlier on with the cybersecurity exercise we ran at the last NIST conference. And that was more getting people to think and not telling them how to respond. Because with all due respect, I'm in a room with people that have got a lot more experience than me combined together in that room, as you said, 150, 200 people times, even if you look at 10 years experience, 2000 years experience. So I can share my story. I can share what I've done, but I share that in the hope that people take something away. However, I'm trying to get more 
interactive now because I'm tired of going to presentations and everyone telling us what best practice is. What I want to hear is how do we implement it? Where have we done it? And where have we failed? So that other people can take that away and remember our mistakes and not repeat them. Definitely. I think those types of stories are, are definitely, when we talk about, you mentioned this just now, you know, the ones that are the the speakers that are the most, the rated highest generally at NISC are the ones that are, are coming and telling their story about what happened in their organisations, what the challenge was, how they overcame it. People want to hear that. People want to hear, you know, how did you do this? What what did you find? What was, the, you know, how did you overcome that? Um, I think that's, that's the side that we... We don't, we're still not great at sharing that, I don't think, as an industry. I think there's still a bit of um, reluctance, I think, sometimes to talk about what's going on inside the organisation with candour and to talk about some of the issues that have been discussed. So I think, but when we do it, it's very, very powerful, I think. So So what's next for you, Dennis, in terms of, you know, how do you see your career? So you are in the role now that you had your eye on. (laughs) uh many years ago um how do you see what you're going to do develop you've talked about obviously giving back being more visible you've talked about moving the needle how do you see your career progressing from here how do you think that will move forward very very interesting question annabelle so at the moment i still have a few exciting projects to deliver in Akiva and I also still have a bit to learn quite a bit to learn I think you always learn all your life anyway however what I do want to start doing now is applying myself more to the industry so for example we've just brought on a grad so I would like to mentor the grad support the grad I'd like to mentor a lot more people within my function at the moment within my company to help them develop and share my journey and while mm. I do that, I also want to find what other social costs, causes I can address outside of Akiva. I can't do much at the moment because of my MBA, but I'm hoping that as that winds down, I'll be able to take up something more tangible across industry. So be it working with um, the teams out there who are developing the open career framework. Often people ask me, how did you get in? How was your journey? You know, and we don't have any map. If my nephew today asked me, oh, Dennis, I want to become a pen tester. I'm not going to know what to tell them to do. I'm probably going to say, go and do CEH. Boy, CEH, the right thing. Certified ethical hacker, or is it watch a bunch of YouTube videos that are free? Look at this government resources, download this box, play, be curious. I want to go out there and encourage people to be curious and guide them on how to be curious. That's kind of on my very, very near radar. In terms of when next after Akiva, to be honest, right now, don't know when that journey is going to end yet because I have, I know what I need to do in the future. And Mm. however, when it does, to be frank, I actually don't know where, where I will land because like I said, I take it one step at a time. So it may be somewhere in another org. It may be, you know, working for a governmental organization it's just where the challenge is one of the things about me i like challenges i like big problems and i like fixing things that are broken (laughs) i function better on the stress and that's my operational background i'm not one of those because i think like every there's different styles of leaders even in CISOs which is why I get upset when people say oh this is not a good CISO that's not a good CISO I just think it's not the right type for the organization at the stage of that journey 
and at the moment things excite me i like you know i like complex challenges pressures we need to fix stuff we need to do a plan we need to move forward that's what gets me out of bed i I wouldn't go and do just you know business as usual everything's ticking over it's normal so i'm more i see myself more as a transformational leader or a leader who can step in in the time of crisis um however i do want to do quite a lot more in resiliency and enabling and educating leaders to prevent the crisis from happening in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And be a sounding board. Be a sounding board to other CISOs, you know, when they have problems button. Because the problem we've got is we're victims of our own success. Because the CISO role, the security role, has never been as important as it is today, especially with the pandemic where all companies are relying on systems now. Mm. So all of a sudden, you've got this function that's taking the similar journey the CTO, CIO took that has been sort of in the corner of an organization. This is not representative of my organization, by the way. I'm just um, generalizing. It's not generally been taken seriously. It's either been compliance or something. And then boards are waking up because they're seeing huge companies with huge budgets being brought down to their knees. And now CISOs security leaders, whatever job title we want to call ourselves, are being brought to that forefront. And we now have to, we now have to play up to it, basically. This is your point earlier on. When you don't know something, how are you confident? How do you go on it? And that's the journey I, myself, am still on. And a lot more people will have to take that journey. And I can tell you, it is not, it is not easy. To me, I'll be very candid and share this. I broke before I became stronger. I don't well I don't think that's an unusual story really is it I think sometimes we we do, you have to go through that quite often you have to go through failures um and that's hard when you go through those failures but I think those those are the things that do make you stronger ultimately um I think you can never learn from anyone else you can be warned about things and you know people can say people can give you advice but I think sometimes it's going through those that make the real change for people. And there isn't a successful person I know who hasn't had mm. an epic failure somewhere along in their, in their career. And, you know, if, if you have the right, if you take the right things from it, which is what you were saying earlier about learning lessons, then you, you do come out stronger from it, I think. Um, but I think people are a lot, a lot of people are f- afraid of falling uh, are afraid of the failure. And, and the fear keeps them from stopping doing things, I think, which um, which is probably a whole other podcast. <laughs> fear, f- fight the fear, do it anyway. What does it feel the fear, do it anyway? I can't remember. There's a book, isn't there? I can't remember. It's something like... No, I, I don't know that book. But if you can send it to me, I will add it to the next book to my title. Yeah, okay. <laughs> add it to your I'll audio add, book list. I'll, I'll add it to my audio book list. No, but I was, I was going to pick up, actually, a very important point you've made, if we've got a few more minutes. Yeah, sure. It was around fear of failure. And I've heard, studied, learned, listened to a little fact that we're conditioned to be scared of failure from when we are born. Don't cross the road, you'll be hit by a car. Don't talk to strangers. Don't, you know, don't do this before you go to bed. Otherwise, you'll get teeth decay, tooth decay. So I think a lot of our reinforcements as we've been growing up has been, if you don't study, you're going to fail. 
you won't pass your exams. If you don't pass your exams, you're not going to get your pocket money. So I think that's the food for thought I like to leave people with. So when that inner demon or inner conscience in the mind, you know, the little voice is saying, or you fail, you do this, just think and ask yourself, what is the worst that can happen? Completely agree. Completely agree. And that's a great point and a bit of advice to wrap up the discussion on, um, Dennis. Well, we've still got our rapid response questions. So I'm going to fire into those. If you brace yourself, if you've got your second second rum on the go. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> still on the first. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we're going to go into the rapid response then. So the question one is, what is the most memorable concert you've ever been to? Afro Nations in Portugal, 2019. Oh, tell me. Tell me more. Oh, my God. That was the best. It was the most amazing concert. So it was um, in the beach in Faro, near Faro. And it was Afro Nations, African artists. There was Wizkid, Burner Boy, some fer- those are very famous Nigerian artists. And you also had Femi Kuti, who's Fela Kuti's son, a sort of Afrobeat activist Fela was before he died a long time ago in Nigeria. One of my heroes, actually, he was. And it was just, it was fun. It was 40,000 people on the beach, not violence. Like normally people say, oh, yeah, when there's these kind of people from society, there's fights, police arrest. It was so friendly. The Portuguese were friendly. It was the sun. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing sounds idyllic and a rum or two consumed i bet yeah i'll say yeah just (laughs) but the the funny the funny funny thing actually and this is the beauty of working for akiva so get to the concert my friend was one of the organizers so we get in which hanging out and we end up being next to the tv um recording studio the tv recording studios where they were recording the artist and i just get talking to them i was like oh what company are you from they're like oh xyz I'm like, oh, you guys are customers. I go to your offices here in London. I'm not going to disclose who the companies are. And that was it. My festival was sorted. And I didn't even know these people. And that's that's how nice people are when you provide a good service to them as well, when they've heard about you or your company. So I think reputation is big. So, yeah, that's why I enjoyed Afro Nations even more. Definitely. Sounds sounds good. Sounds like it. Sounds like one for the diary next year then. Hopefully, I'm just hoping COVID lets up because I was actually going to go to the one in March for my birthday, but then my BA flight that was going out as I was checking in, they told me it wasn't coming back. So I had a choice to make and I thought the responsible thing is to stay in this country. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's happened to a lot of people this year, unfortunately. So fingers crossed for next year. Um, Okay, question two. Big question for a rapid response, but what's the biggest challenge very quickly, in your opinion, facing us in InfoSec today? Um, I think our biggest challenge is morphing. I think our biggest challenge is getting the right... So for most changing as career professionals, I think it's getting the right soft skill cells of influencing, storytelling, selling to stakeholders. Overall, I think we'll need that ever so more because the number of attacks are increasing, even in the NCSC's latest reports, all the metrics, attackers are attacking us more because they know we're relying on technology and it's our job to step up and take our journeys and society as a whole um, on that journey, especially in the UK to support our government's agenda of making UK the safest place to live and work online. Good point. Okay, question three. 
what has been your all-time favourite box set binge? Ooh, okay. I've got quite a few. I have to say 24. 24. Have you seen all of them? Jack Bauer. I have seen all of them indeed. And the first one I saw, I actually binged it in 24. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, isn't it? That's, how long ago was that? That must be... I don't know. Is that 10? That was probably... 10 years ago? Two, or more than that? 2000 and... Uh, yeah, probably about 10 years ago because it was similar times to when Lost came out as well. I remember Lost. Lost was like, wow, things were falling from the sky. But I got lost in Lost though. Yes. I only made it to think to series three, I think, or 24. I think I didn't I didn't watch all of them, I think, in the end. But, um, but yeah, I know it was a good one. Definitely. Okay, good. Um... Question four, do you have an InfoSec hero or Shiro? Do I have an InfoSec hero? Mm, yeah, I do have an InfoSec hero, actually, yeah. I do. I do have an InfoSec hero. And who is it? Um, I'll say it's Dr. Ian Levy of the NCSC. Good choice. Then why would that be? He's just a human being and just talks mm. straight and tells you how it is. You know, there's... That is one of my values. Be straightforward. Just say it as it is and be human. You know, you see him somewhere, you wouldn't even realize his position with the humility he's got. And, you know, I just think a lot of the things he says make sense. And to me, he, I respected him a lot when he made public on the NCSC blog the conversation between him and the person who tried to fish him and how he almost fell for yeah. it. And that was where he went up in my respect traders majorly. And, I also think he has done amazing things in moving the bar of UK PLC security, obviously not on his own with a team, but being the technical director of the NCSC, I think he's done a great job. Good. Good choice. Thank you. Um, moving on then, question five. So this is a foodie question, Dennis, and you talked earlier on about your culinary skills. Um, so you've had a really shockingly bad day. And you're after some comfort food. What is on the menu for you? It's got to be Nigerian barbecue suya. Oh, what is that? So that is basically thin slices of meat, very thin. So we're talking about three, about three, four millimeters thin. So think of sizzle steak in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's coated in a special spice made there's about nine ingredients in there i'm only going to name two or three to give you a hint of where it's going so it's um ground chili um ground sorry ground um peanuts so you know roasted peanuts you grind it mm -hmm. so it's a fine powder ginger garlic cayenne pepper black pepper and a little bit of salt and you coat it on it and literally you sizzle it on the green with on the grill with peanut oil groundnut oil and oh my God, it just drops off in the mouth. Anyone listening to this from Lagos or who has tried Nigerian suya will tell you it is like the best meal. Normally you drink it, you, sorry, you eat it when you're drinking. It's kind of a nibble. It's very Moorish. You can eat a lot, a lot of it. My mouth is literally watering as you, as you've just described that. So literally, my, I, I'm seriously, I'm just like, oh my God, I could eat a plate of that right now. So that sounds amazing. Okay, good. I'm going to have to try that sometime. Um, and final question. Um, and I think I might know the answer to this, given something you said earlier on, but I'm not, I'm going to ask you anyway. 
Uh, how would people describe you in one word, Dennis? Wow, that's a tough one. I'm speaking for the people here. How would people? I'd just say genuine or straightforward. Genuine, yeah. Yeah, genuine. Yeah, yeah. Good. Genuine. I think that's. I think I think that's what they'll say. Yeah. I think that's a good. I think that's a good good answer, and I think um, and very um, very appropriate as well. I thought you were going to go with enabler. That's why I was because you were talking about that was your kind of vision to be an enabler. But I thought that's where you might go. But but genuine is 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 uh, is equally appropriate for you. So yeah. So you see, I thought of where I was going to go because I was going to think of enabler, caring, understanding. But I think being genuine by that I mean a nice human being. So everything else comes as part of that one thing that's how i see if you're nice decent genuine then you enable people you you help people right yes you know, yes you're a steward as uh, you said definitely and my experience of you Dennis, is that you are an extremely genuine and kind individual and uh and it's a it's a pleasure to know you and i've absolutely been delighted that you've come on and told your story it's been fascinating to hear um, thank you so much. For anyone who wants to get in touch with you, are you on any of the social media channels? Are you contactable on any of them? I am contactable indeed. I'm contactable on LinkedIn. Okay. And um, if they just use the subject as um, the title of the podcast, that'll be great because they now know where they've come from Brilliant. security. That sounds great. Wonderful. Dennis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Look after yourself, obviously, in this forthcoming second lockdown that we're just about to go into tomorrow. And um, hopefully we'll have a chance to catch up in person sometime soon. <laughs> Don't know when that might be, but sometime soon. But um, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And thank you for your honesty and your candour. And I'm sure there'll be people listening who've been absolutely inspired again by what what you've said in your story so thank you very much no problem Annabelle thank you very much for having me on the sofa today on the virtual sofa it's been a pleasure I'm totally happy to share my story if it inspires someone changes someone's mind helps them feel better or they want to reach out to me then by all means I'm available you know I would like to share my mistakes so that others don't have to make them wonderful so thank you thanks Dennis